Protesters have returned to the streets in cities across Lebanon for a second day, with one demonstrator reportedly killed in the latest clashes. Celebrations on the streets of Aden. The separatist Southern Transitional Council, which operates in several of Yemen's southern provinces, declared self-governance. But the government warns the move could have catastrophic consequences. Good morning. Hello, welcome to Dispatch, a weekly podcast from Middle East Eye's global newsroom. On the show today, protests return to Lebanon streets despite a coronavirus lockdown. So why are they back? The mysterious death of a young Palestinian in Israeli jail sparks anger across the West Bank. And in Yemen, the government's stronghold in the southern city of Aden is taken over by separatists. But what do they want? My name is Mohammed Hassan. I'm joined by three of my esteemed colleagues from the far stretches of the world to talk about this week's biggest stories from the Middle East and beyond. Joining me today are Middle East Eye journalist Heba Nasser, Palestine correspondent for Mondo Ice Yomna Patel, and Yemeni analyst and deputy director of the Sana'a Center, Osama Rouhani. We've been looking at escalating scenes from Lebanon this week as protesters return to the streets in anger and frustration over a collapsing economy and a lack of access to basic necessities. In Tripoli, one man was shot and killed in confrontations with security forces as protesters targeted banks and refused to comply with a coronavirus lockdown order. Heba Nasser, I'll back and begin with you. Can you tell us what is happening and what is driving people back onto the streets now? Things have been bad um, for months now, but um, since October, the currency has lost more than half its value. And in the past weeks, the, the currency has reached 4,000 liras to the dollar as opposed to 1,500. And prices have risen by uh, 55%. And um, you have 45% of the population now living uh, below the poverty line. Uh, people have not been able to withdraw their uh, dollar from deposits. And I've had people tell me that just buying the very essential things for the house now feels like splurging because of how much people are having to pay for food and other basic necessities. So all of this has uh, been compounded um, by the coronavirus lockdown, which um, has led to many people losing their jobs. So now people are just uh, even angrier than before. Yeah, these protesters that are coming out, um, are they not worried about the spread of the coronavirus? Every, you know, uh, the, uh, Lebanon has been in lockdown for over a month now. Um, I, I feel people have reached um, uh, a place where that doesn't matter anymore. Um, not being able to work or um, being afraid of, of uh, being broke or, or going hungry is um, more important than um, than the threat of coronavirus. So, um, so people are just have reached a place where they can't take the situation anymore. Um, like um, in Tripoli, for example, which is the largest city in northern Lebanon and the second largest city in the country, uh, businesses are opening uh, in complete defiance of the lockdown uh, because of the high level of, um, of poverty in the city. And um, at the protests, um, which have been very violent, to what translates to um, Corona, Corona, we don't have Corona, which shows you um, the level of desperation that people are going through. I think especially in Tripoli, what we're seeing this week seems like it's different from the protests that we had in the past before uh, before the coronavirus pandemic. What has changed? There are now more reasons to be angry. So the vibe is definitely different this time around. The crisis has reached yet a new level. 
and uh, maybe in, in, uh, in the first wave of the protest and after the October uprising started is that um, there's a lot of, there was a lot of hope that we were, were going to bring down the government and maybe have a new government that will uh, start implementing things um, or implementing reforms that would help our lives. And, but we have not seen changes. And it just seems that we reached a, a place where it doesn't seem likely that this crisis is going to end anytime soon. This week also we heard from Riyad Salema, the, the outspoken central bank chief, who who's blamed the government for a lack of reforms and basically for failing and being uh, the reason for this economic collapse. What has the government been doing to respond to people's demands, especially all this anger that we're seeing in the streets? Um, actually, today they will announce um, a reform plan. Um, so we'll we'll see what's uh, what's that going to be about. But when the coronavirus lockdown started, they said that they will give uh, they will give out financial assistance to uh, families in need, uh, which which a payment of uh, four hundred thousand liras, which comes up to around one hundred twenty dollars, and that's a one time payment. So people haven't really seen a response. Like this is not linked to maybe Riyad Saleme, but um, I, I think now, right now, what we're seeing is a lot of back and forth. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, trading blame, and um, a solution is not clear yet because we're all waiting for the for the government's reform plan, and um, we haven't really seen anything on the ground. <laughs> وما بعرف إذا في كان إرادة فعلاً ليكون في إصلاحات بس البنك المركزي دائماً كان عم يطالب بهالإصلاحات. 23-year-old Palestinian man Noor Jaber Barghouti had been in an Israeli prison since 2016 when he was sentenced to eight years for shooting at Israeli military infrastructure in the West Bank. But he only served half of it when, on April 21st, he was reportedly found unconscious in a bathroom by prison guards. His death has raised questions and stirred anger by his family and Palestinians across the West Bank. Yumna Patel, thank you for joining us. What do we know about what happened to Noor? Thank you for having me. So, yeah, as you said, I mean, the case of Noor Barhouti has sparked this level of outrage and sort of interest for a number of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, because of how young he was and the mysterious nature in which he died. Um, according to the accounts of prisoners and prisoners' rights group locally, um, he fell unconscious and sort of crashed to the ground in the bathroom of the prison cell, which caused a ruckus and caused the prisoners to, to notice that something was wrong. And they tried to get the attention of the prison guards, but they said that it took the guards more than you know, more than 45 minutes to actually come to his aid and to and even longer to call an ambulance. So, you know, this has raised questions of medical negligence and negligence on part of the Israeli prison services. And many people are holding them accountable for not acting sooner and not acting quicker, um, which could have potentially saved his life. So, you know, since 1967, I mean, 20% of the total population and 40% of the male Palestinian population in the occupied territories has been in prison. So if you haven't been, you know, for Palestinians, specifically Palestinian males, if you haven't been in prison yourself, you probably know a family member or a friend who has been or still is in prison. So this issue really hits close to home. You know, accounts of medical negligence in Israeli prisons have been well documented by rights groups. 
And it's something that, again, is well known amongst the population. So when something like this happens, people are sort of immediately triggered by this news and they immediately sort of suspect that foul play was involved. You know, the preliminary results of his autopsy say that he committed suicide. So that's another reason why this has sparked so much outrage, because that is, you know, as you know, a very touchy subject for Palestinians and Muslims in general, as it's considered prohibited by Islam. So if that were to be true, um, it would be very hard for, for his family and for people in the community in general to, to suspect that. Following his death, reports, you know, surfaced from his family that he had endured, you know, very long and taxing interrogations that lasted over 120 days, part, many parts of which he was held in isolation and solitary confinement, and he endured, you know, mental and physical trauma. So at the end of the day, people are still holding the Israeli authorities responsible. And have we heard anything so far? I know the autopsy results haven't been released from Israeli officials about what happened, about the conduct of the prison guards. So far, the Israeli prison service, from what I know, has just commented on the autopsy and the fact that those results have shown that, you know, the preliminary results show that he committed suicide. But I have not seen anything from the Israeli prison services making a statement on why they were so late when it came to responding. Um, and typically in these instances, um, there is very little accountability for these, you know, prison services and authorities, you know, across the board. This is obviously a, a case that is very uh, sensitive and feels very personal to a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank. You know, a lot of villages you you visit, you can see pictures plastered on the walls of of, uh, of young prisoners, of young people in prison. Um, this is a, a huge topic. And, and um, how are Palestinians that you're speaking to feeling about this case, but also generally about the issue of prisoners? The issue of prisoners is always something that's at the forefront of the Palestinian cause. So, you know, just recently this month was Palestinian Prisoners Day. Um, and so even though, you know, this year we were under coronavirus lockdown, so there were no protests and sit-ins like there usually are, but people were, you know, plastered on social media, were photos of prisoners, people's friends or family members who were in prison, tributes to prisoners, calls for, you know, prisoners to be released, um, especially during, you know, the, the coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, despite everything that's going on and sort of all the issues that plague Palestinians on a daily basis, you know, the issue of prisoners is sort of this almost like pillar of what Palestinians consider their struggle against the occupation just because of how, how much this, you know, prison system has affected the population on such a wide scale. Finally today, the conflict in Yemen is in its sixth year between Houthi rebels from the north of the country who in 2015 launched a rebellion and took the country's capital, Sana'a, and a Saudi Arabian-led military coalition attempting to push the Houthis back and restore Yemen's government, now operating out of the southern city of Aden. But of course, things are not that simple. This week, a group called the Southern Transitional Council took over control of Aden, saying the government had failed to provide for the people of southern Yemen. Joining us today is Osama al-Rawhani. Can you explain to us, first of all, 
who is the Southern Transitional Council and what exactly do they want? The STC is, uh, or they call the Southern Transition Council, the STC is a three-year-old Southern separatist group that has uh, been uh, financed and supported by the UAE uh, before uh the inception of the STC. The STC were members of the Hirak, of the Southern Hirak uh, movement, which was established back in 2007. Uh, yet, uh, since then, it was unable to work under one command, rather, it comprises tens of factions. Uh, that being said, I assume that the STC uh, could be described as the most structured political entity in the South and has the ability to mobilize supporters in different parts of the South. However, um, uh, it, it hasn't been able to recognize or manage its relationship with the other Southern uh, com uh, components. Thus, I assume uh, it cannot claim uh, itself to represent uh, all the South. In terms of the rest of these provinces, the Southern provinces in, in Southern Yemen, including Aden itself, the people themselves, the different tribes, do they support this move? Do they support the STC taking over? It's really too early to respond to this uh, question. Uh, and actually, there is not a clear answer. Uh, but people in the South, and not only in the South, and all across uh, Yemen, uh, always interact with performance of the government or the de facto uh, authorities in delivering basic services, in paying salaries, in addressing their day-to-day -day needs. Uh, the government during the past uh, years in, in the South at least has failed to achieve its, or actually to respond to these uh, basic needs. And maybe that would, to some extent, uh, give an opportunity for the STC to stand uh, ahead of these uh, needs. Uh, but the question is why the government has failed during the, the past month delivering these services. And this has to do with the armed conflict uh, and also the uh, the uh, the outcome with the STC, but also their inability to come back and function fully uh, from uh, from Aden. And last year, there were several months of of fighting back and forth between the STC and the government and the Saudi coalition. Uh, that resulted in the Riyadh agreement, which was you know eventually a power sharing deal signed between both sides. This move now by the STC, is this the end of the Riyadh Agreement? Is it dead or is there still some salvaging it? Yeah, I think in my opinion that the Riyadh Agreement was dead soon after it was signed. Um, and this last move just reflects the mistrust of one of the conflicting parties, the STC, uh, against Saudis, which is the guarantor and the mediator of, the, of this agreement. Uh, the STC's self-ruled uh, statement appear to mostly be directed to, again, Saudi Arabia, and that shows the deteriorating uh, relationship between uh, both parties. This definitely uh, has resulted in, in, in a political unrest. It puts Saudi now in a very critical uh, situation, but also most uh, importantly is that now this might uh, makes things worse and uh, there's a possibility of uh, another round of armed conflict uh, in that area. 
I think one of the other things that was cited as well by the STC is is the the round of uh, heavy flash floods and heavy rains in in a lot of parts of Yemen over the last few weeks, which of course you know devastated a lot of the these cities, including parts of Aden. Um, in terms of the government's response and its ability to function in southern Yemen, has it now lost all control to to, to operate as a proper government in that part of Yemen at least? You know the Yemeni. The, the government of Yemen has lost control over Adam uh, since August 2019. So they haven't been able to function since uh, then. They, even before that, they have lost control over security in Adam, which was controlled by the STC uh, right after its call uh, early that year. And it's it's safe to say that, yes, the government hasn't uh, been present on the ground. Maybe a few uh, government or cabinet ministers were in, in Adam, but they weren't able to function given uh, that they were in, in, in conflict with the STC. Now we could see that the government has been blaming the STC and the STC is blaming uh, the government, which again, uh, it shows the intense and the uh, the complex relationship between these two warring or these conflicting uh, parties. And again, this reflects back to your earlier question is, does the real agreement, is it still viable? Is it still implementable? And the question is just uh, no, because the, the both parties are not uh, ready to commit to any agreement or to end uh, the conflict. Uh, both parties have different agendas. The government of Yemen is um, with the unity of, of, of Yemen. It represents all Yemenis, while the agenda of the separatist group is for secession uh, between the north and, uh, and, and south. Can you give us a little bit of context about the secessionist movements in southern Yemen? Because obviously they've been around for a very long time. The SEC, as you mentioned, uh, just the latest iteration of it. But where does this idea stem from in, in Yemen? Actually, it uh, goes back to uh, 1990 when Yemen was united between southern and northern Yemen. Um, and there was disagreement or uh, there's a disagreement over the power sharing between Ali Abdullah Saleh and Ali Salam al bid uh, who both were the counterparts of North and South, uh, respectively. And in 1994, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh launched a war in, in the South, and uh, he won that war. And since then, um, the way Saleh has, managed, has been managing things, uh, there has been a lot of grievances against Southern uh, leaders or Southern uh, components, and they feel that they have uh, been a victim of this uh, unity. Um, it was a bit not very active until 2007 when the Southern Iraq movement started uh, and they started calling for secessions. But as I mentioned earlier, that the South Iraq or the South Iraq movement was uh, or had different agendas and different goals. Uh, some would call for secessionists, some would call for a federal state, some would call for uh, having a part of, 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 of the pie. Uh, but anyways, I mean, this scattered uh, scattered effort in the South has grown until 2017 when UAE was the outside supporter of one of these groups and, and actually has helped it to form uh, what we call today the STC. Now, speaking of the UAE, I think it's one of the big question marks for people on the outside trying to understand what that country's role is. There, of course coalition partners with Saudi Arabia in, in the fight against the Houthis, um, but yet they have been supporting the STC, uh, which is a separatist movement, which ex- is, you know, essentially was against the Yemeni government. What is their role? Why are they supporting the STC? And what do they want exactly out of the situation? I, I believe the role of, of the UAE 
has been uh, contradicting. Uh, the UAE, as part of the Saudi-led coalitions, uh, was supposed to bring the Yemeni government back to uh, to Yemen and regain the legitimacy of the government of Yemen uh, and take, uh, or to, to some extent, defeat the Houthis. However, the coalition, not only UAE, has failed in this. Uh, UAE has other different uh, uh, plans, which is reflected in their political and economic interest in the MENA region. And, and the STC is one of the groups that exist in the coastal uh, areas of, uh, of Yemen, which for UAE are very strategic economic location uh, that they would like to, uh, to, to make use of. The UAE in, in, in Yemen's has, in my opinion, as a destructive uh, role. Uh, first of all, it created a lot of fragmentations uh, between the different anti-Houthi uh, Yemeni components. It supports one against other. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any efforts to bring these power together uh, in a way that uh, could help at least form uh, a government, at least in the areas of the anti-Houthi uh, territories, to be able to provide services to citizens. Uh, UAE uh, in in, in Yemen, we could say to some extent, is now in confrontation with Saudi Arabia uh, in Yemen. It's not, it might not be directly, uh, but it seems that uh, this proxies, uh, I mean, Saudi proxies and the UAE proxies are fighting, uh, which reflects, again, uh, a lack of a unified agenda in the region of power. Here we say Saudi and uh, and Emirates. So finally then, reflecting five years on of this campaign launched by Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, back in 2015, has that campaign failed completely? I mean, it's, uh, if we would look at the main objective of the Saudi coalition is to bring the government of Yemen, I think it has failed uh, a lot in that uh, end. It has contributed to fragmentations all across Yemen, although it's been supporting the unity of Yemen, but the actions uh, has shown otherwise. The contradicting rules of Saudi and UAE in Yemen uh, has been contributing to this to this big failure. And the question is, does really the Saudi-led coalition uh, aware of the mess that they have made? I think to some extent, yes. And, and, and recently they have been looking for a face-saving exit, not addressing the conflict in Yemen. Rather, it's complicating it, and it is changing the political and geographical map of, of Yemen, which for us as Yemenis is, is the biggest concern and worry, uh, and, and Saudi has to rethink its approach uh, of how uh, it does this uh, exit and how to ensure that it uh, brings back the stability and security back to, to Yemen, even to what it was before 2015. We're going to leave things here for today. Thank you to Hiba Nasser, Yumna Patel, and Usama Rouhani for joining me on this week's episode of Dispatch. You can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Please follow us, subscribe, and give us a cheeky rating. It goes a long way. 
Of course, you can keep up to date with all of our news coverage throughout the week by heading along to our website at middleeastai.net. Thank you for listening. Ramadan Karim to all those observing. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week.